The following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now, it was custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why, what crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. 175 years ago this year, right here in Richmond, Virginia, a pastor named J.L. Reynolds published a little book on church government. Uh, church polity. Listen to how he begins. When Christ uttered in the judgment hall of Pilate the remarkable words, I am a king, he pronounced a sentiment fraught with unspeakable dignity and power. His enemies might deride his pretensions and express their mockery of his claim by presenting him with a crown of thorns, a reed, and a purple robe, and nailing him to the cross. But in the eyes of unfallen intelligences, he was a king. A higher power presided over that derisive ceremony and converted it into a real coronation. That crown of thorns was indeed the diadem of empire. That purple robe was the badge of royalty. That fragile reed was the symbol of unbounded power and and that cross, the throne of dominion, which shall never end. How's that for an opening paragraph in a book on church polity? I read that 16 years ago and have never forgotten it. And it's a vivid picture of the passage that we come to this morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. Uh, It's the early morning hours of what will become known as Good Friday. In a matter of just a couple of hours, Jesus will be stripped and he'll be nailed to a Roman cross. The first 10 chapters, uh, as, as you know, if, if you've been with us for the journey, the first 10 chapters moved at a blistering pace, covering weeks, months, sometimes even years at a time. But in chapter 11, it's like Mark changed the setting on his camera to slow motion. And so for chapters 11 all the way through chapter 15, things have been moving incredibly slowly. In fact, 
everything in chapters 11 to 15 has taken place in just one week, the final week of Jesus' life. This is where Mark wants our focus, which brings us to the final morning. Main idea uh, of this, I think, and, and the reason I give you a main idea uh, sentence, uh, if, if you haven't been worshiping with us for very long, it's, it's in part to keep myself honest and disciplined to make sure that I'm uh, accurately expressing the meaning of the passage. Uh, so the, the main idea of the, the passage should, ref, should be reflected in the main idea of the message, but I also do it to help you all uh, learn better how to read your Bibles, because uh, if we're doing this right, as I said, the, the main idea of the passage will be reflected in the main idea of the message. Here's what it is, simply put. Jesus the innocent stood condemned so that we the guilty might go free. There's more to say than that, but there's no less to say than that. Jesus the innocent stood condemned so that we the guilty might go free. We'll, We'll think about this in three points. The silence of the lamb, the sentence of the lamb, and the substitution of the lamb. The silence of the lamb, which was going to be the sermon title, but Adam Tanner came up with an even better one. The silence of the lamb, the sentence of the lamb, and the substitution of the lamb. First, the silence of the lamb. Verse 1, very early in the morning, the chief priest with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. It's been a long night. These these guys have gotten no sleep, but things are actually going according to plan. They've indicted Jesus for blasphemy in their religious court, but technically, as we saw last week, technically that's not enough to get him killed. The the Jews don't have the power of capital punishment. That resides with Rome. And so after Jesus has been whipped, they take him from their religious court to a political one, the place where a criminal's life really is on the line. See, they just need some semblance of legality for their evil proceedings. They wouldn't dare kill Jesus themselves, certainly not on the Passover. These are holy men, pious men, but they have no problem coercing a pagan to do their lethal bidding. And so Mark tells us they hand Jesus over. That's the phrase Mark uses. They hand Jesus over. In the Old Testament, that language of being handed over refers to the Lord judging Israel with exile. The Lord handing over Israel to the nations. But here it's the reverse. Israel is handing over the Lord to the nations. Verse 2. Are you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate. Notice the charge, the chief priests apparently that the charge they've, they've brought to Pilate is not blasphemy. That's what they indicted him for overnight, but they don't bring that charge to Pilate. As the Roman governor, they know he doesn't care about that. And so they've translated their verdict into political terms. Hence, Pilate's first question, are you the king of the Jews? The first word there in the original language is you. It's, it's like he's saying, you're the king of the Jews? <laughs> How ridiculous. 
He's probably just woken up. <laughs> I mean, he, he gets right to the point. Don't waste my time. Here's the question. Jesus, is that what his name is? Okay, Jesus, here's the question. Are you a political threat to me or Caesar or not? Jesus replies, essentially, you said it. It's certainly not a denial, but it's also not a full-throated affirmation. It's a subtle one. And so the deliberations continue. Verse 3, the chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. We saw the same thing overnight in the house of Caiaphas when Jesus stood silent in the face of slander. Remember, the recruited witnesses couldn't get their own stories to agree. That plan failed. So what happens now? The chief priests forget about the middlemen, and they just say, okay, we're going to try ourselves. So they, they try themselves here to bring charges against Jesus, and all the while, Jesus continues to fulfill that ancient prophecy from Isaiah's scroll. Isaiah 53, 7, referring to the suffering servant, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Now, seven centuries later, after Isaiah, that promised suffering king is standing calm and composed before the Roman governor. Pilate is not used to seeing this. Pilate has presided over a lot of cases like this where someone is up for capital punishment. Pilate is used to seeing people defending themselves, falling all over themselves, falling apart, begging for their lives. He's never seen anything like this, which is why we read at the end of verse 5, but Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. What a difference, by the way, between Jesus, the second Adam, and the first. What happened in the Garden of Eden when Adam got caught in sin, hiding in the bushes behind the pathetic covering of fig leaves? What did he say? What did Adam say when he was on trial? The woman, the woman you gave me, God, it's her fault. She gave me the fruit. And a woman, I'll have you remember, God, that you gave me. It's your fault too. Adam was guilty and tried to plead innocent. Jesus is innocent and yet makes no defense at all. The silence of the lamb. Number two the sentence of the lamb. We'll spend the most time on this one. The sentence of the lamb. Verse six. <clears throat> now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. We don't know how this amnesty practice came about, but it was probably a way for Pilate to appease the Jews and keep the peace, which the emperor was expecting him to do. We also don't know exactly who makes up this early morning crowd, but surely it's interspersed with priests, whispering priests, who are saying to the people around, hey, 
Let's remind Pilate of the custom. Let's get him to release this year's prisoner. Mark previews in verse 7 how the scene's going to unfold by, by zooming in on one particular guy in jail. His name is Barabbas, and we're told he's a violent insurrectionist and a murderer. This is a dangerous man. Now, bear in mind, Mark, as a reporter after the fact, mentions Barabbas, but no one in the scene has yet. The crowd has simply said, Pilate, sir, will you please let a Jewish prisoner go? That's the custom. It's that time of year. Will you please let a prisoner go? And so Pilate actually sees an opportunity to release Jesus. Jesus, this innocent man with dried blood on his back from the whipping and his hands bound behind his back. He's done nothing wrong. And so verse 9 Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. Knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. It was out of self-interest. It's the word for envy. All of this plotting and planning has been a slow burn in their souls as they've grown more and more jealous at the attention this messianic pretender is getting, which is another way of saying is stealing from them. In John's gospel, we hear similar statements from the Pharisees like John 11. If if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Or John 12, many people, because they'd heard he'd perform this sign, raising Lazarus from the dead, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. The religious leaders have been envious for a long time. Pilate's just seeing the the culmination. Oh, friends, envy is an insidious evil. Envy is an insidious evil. It lives and broods in our hearts, hidden from watching eyes, and therefore it's easy, easier than some other sins, to nurse, to justify, or at least tolerate, and certainly to underestimate. And envy becomes an absolute cancer when it begins spreading among the body of Christ. Every time I teach the membership class and we walk through our church covenant, I linger over that promise I prayed about in the prayer. We will rejoice at each other's happiness and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. And I ask in the membership class, which of those two halves, rejoicing with those who rejoice, or weeping with those who weep, is harder. And I'm convinced that for most, it's actually rejoicing with those who rejoice. Anyone with a heart can be sad when someone else is sad, but it takes enormous virtue to be happy when someone else is happy, especially when their specific happiness is the very thing you wanted. When you've been wanting attention from that person you like and they're enamored with someone else. When you can't even get a single date and your friend just got engaged. When you've been struggling for years and years to get pregnant and your friends just got pregnant 
for another time. When you've been craving an upfront teaching or leadership opportunity and that other guy keeps getting it. When you've been wanting some recognition, just a little appreciation, please, for the way you've been serving and that other church member who you're pretty sure is less mature than you and is doing less than you keeps getting praised. I mean, growing up, we're taught, hey, don't complain. Count your blessings. Count your blessings. Count your blessings. Envy is the wicked art of counting someone else's blessings instead of your own. And letting that scorecard fester, letting that scorecard grow in your heart. How how can you know self-interest and envy have a chokehold on your heart? How can you be aware of this chokehold? Well, you may have it if you find yourself resenting someone else. For example, in the context of a church, you find yourself resenting someone else for serving in an area you enjoy. Or resenting someone else because they're more attractive or better with people or have more public gifts. But envy isn't just a horizontal problem between you and another person. Envy is also a direct assault on God. Envy puts God on trial. His wisdom, his sovereignty, his timing, his goodness. It says, I want what I don't have and I have what I don't want and I wouldn't be in this position, God, if you were just doing your job a little better. How do you get out of this chokehold? How do we get out of this chokehold? Well, we start by bringing that festering envy into the light confessing it to someone else. And then you take the next step and and start praying that God would continue to bless that person and smile on them. Not just send them some positive thoughts from afar once a year. Start regularly praying for them that God would prosper them. And here's one more strategy. Don't stop there. Don't stop with just asking God to bless and prosper the one you're tempted to envy, go the next step and reach out to them for some help and advice. It's uncomfortable to even think about, isn't it? It's an ego killer. Asking someone else for counsel or help forces you into the position of not being able to pretend that you don't need help, that that you're self-sufficient, that you have everything together. There's something about that, going to the Lord and then going to the person and, and asking for their assistance that, that, that just will d- deflate your ego like a balloon. In his little book on humility, Gavin Ortland powerfully sums up the danger of this insidious evil. There is no joy in your life that cannot be destroyed by envy. No matter what you have, Envy can say, yeah, you might have X, but you don't have Y. Yeah, you might have gotten into that college, but you didn't get into that one. Yeah, you might be making good money, but you don't have enough time to enjoy it. Yeah, your church might be growing, but you don't have the opportunities that so-and-so has. The ultimate expression of envy came in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were literally in paradise, but envy came along and said, yeah, you may be in paradise, but you're not God. There is no heaven 
he says, that envy cannot make into a hell. Oh, church, let's fight this chokehold together. We're going to need one another, and we're going to need transparency to lean into another promise from our church covenant. We're going to need each other in order to fight this chokehold together, lest, lest we slowly sink down into a hell of our own making. Well, back to the scene. Pilate rightly suspects Jesus is innocent, so he says, do you want me to release him to you? But he also rightly detects that what's propelling the bloodthirst is just old-fashioned, pathetic, self-regarding, self-absorbed, self-interested envy. Verse 11. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. They're so desperate to be rid of Jesus, to delete him from their lives, that they clamor for a known murderer over the Messiah. You can imagine how bewildered Pilate feels. Verse 12, what shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Notice throughout the entire passage, Pilate only asks questions. Do you notice that? He doesn't make a single declarative statement. It's almost like he's trying to to maintain a a safe distance, to to maintain a, a position of neutrality on these proceedings. I'm just asking questions, just figuring things out. But of course, he has no interest in actually bowing to the authority of another king. In John 18, Jesus bluntly tells Pilate, the reason I came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. And Pilate just waxes philosophical. What is truth? Some of you have non-Christian family members or friends in your life like this. Perhaps you're visiting today, and that even describes you. You've mastered the art of the spiritual filibuster. You have mastered the art of always being ready with another question, another way to deflect or distract. Jesus is the Son of God. What about evolution? Jesus got up from the dead. Hey, did you see that documentary about that religious cult? Jesus is returning to judge the world. What do you think of the Crusades? Jesus says, follow me, repent and believe the gospel. What do you think about masks? You can laugh, it's funny. People will say funny things, off the wall, distracting things in order to avoid eye contact with the Son of God. Friend, you can have a high opinion of Jesus and still be in the bullseye of who I'm talking about. What was Pontius Pilate's opinion of Jesus? Verse five, he's amazed at him. Verse 13, he's convinced Jesus is innocent. I mean, that's pretty good. I'm amazed and I think you're innocent. And yet the story doesn't end with him bowing to the king, it ends with him caving to the pressure. Friend, don't think for a moment you can ever ever question your way out of dealing with who Jesus is. There are good questions to ask, hundreds of them in due time. We welcome your questions at this church, but be careful, friend. 
be careful that your questioning doesn't become a strategy of avoidance. It's not enough to think well of Jesus. It's not enough to just be amazed with him. You've got to turn away from your rebellion, whether that rebellion is in the form of self-protecting resistance or if that rebellion is just in the form of a kind of shrugging, yawning indifference. You've got to turn away from it and turn to the king your heart was made for. There are good answers to your questions, every one of them. Just be careful they don't become smoke screens. Well, how does the crowd respond to Pilate? Verse 13, crucify him, they shouted. Crucify him, crucify him. Why? What what crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. He's like, you've been at this all morning. (laughs) You got me out of bed for this. You've been at this all morning and apparently all night and I have yet to hear a single credible charge against this guy. This past week, I I saw a screenshot uh, online of a little children's Bible storybook about the the baptism of Jesus. Um, and, And here's what one page from it read. This is an actual quote. Why do you want me to baptize you? Asked John. You should be baptizing me. Jesus replied, I have come to the river today to wash my sins away. No. And saying no is not being theologically pedantic. It's being historically Christian. For 2,000 years, Christians have affirmed the Bible's clear teaching that Jesus was sinless. In the words of our statement of faith, he freely took our nature, but not our sin. He freely took on our nature, but not our sin. The Bible is crystal clear about this. Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. 1 Peter 2.22, quoting Isaiah 53, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. 1 John 3.5, and notice I'm just giving you different authors. I'm not just giving you four verses from Paul. I'm giving you the unknown author of Hebrews. I'm giving you Peter. I'm giving you John. I'm giving you Paul. This is the uniform witness of the New Testament. 1 John 3, 5, he appeared so that he might take away our sins, but in him is no sin. And of course, our call to worship from earlier in the service, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I deleted over half the verses I was going to read. The point is, we could keep going. The man standing before Pilate and being shouted down by the bloodthirsty mob was the only sinless person to ever walk the face of the earth, with the brief exception of Adam and Eve, who didn't even last three chapters. But this second Adam, in order to be qualified to save the world, hear me clearly, we would have no savior if Jesus had any sin. In order to be qualified to save the world, Jesus had to first trust every word from God's mouth, obey every dimension of God's law, and meet every requirement for God's people. It wasn't enough for Jesus simply to do nothing to offend God. He also had to do everything to please him. But the crowd isn't swayed 
by what even Pilate the pagan is able to see. What crime has he committed? Middle of verse 14, but they shouted all the louder, all the louder, crucify him. And tragically, we don't just see the wickedness of the crowd and the chief priests lobbying to get their way. We also see here the cowardice of Pilate, who's finally willing to violate justice in order to please man. Verse 15, wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. We've already seen the chief priests in a chokehold, the chokehold of envy. And here Pilate, despite all that being amazed at Jesus and recognizing his innocence, Pilate is in another chokehold, the chokehold of cowardice. Wanting to satisfy the crowd. That little phrase should send chills down your spine. Wanting to satisfy the crowd. I've thought a lot this week about why Pilate would have made this choice. I mean, isn't Pilate concerned about political threats? Isn't that the whole reason that the chief priests have trotted Jesus over to Pilate, not on trumped up religious charges, blasphemy, but on political charges, treason? They know the Roman governor will care about that. So why is he willing to release Barabbas, a guy who's taken part in a violent uprising against Rome and who is therefore a proven political threat? It doesn't immediately make sense. And you know what I've come to think? That's kind of the whole point. Fear of man is that powerful. In the moment, In the moment, the pressure of the people's demands and fear of of a riot override any future threat that Barabbas and his gang might pose. In fact, this is what bowing to political pressure often looks like, isn't it? Doing whatever's necessary, whatever's necessary, just to appease the faces right in front of you. Oh, beloved, beware of taking your cues from the crowd. Beware of taking your cues this coming week from the crowd. Proverbs 29, 25 likens the fear of man to a snare. And it's a trap that any of us can fall into at any time. Teens, I want to especially challenge you here. Beware of living out your teenage years, your, your middle school, high school, college years as just a slightly Christianized version of Pontius Pilate. I realize the people you're going to be tempted to appease tomorrow aren't planning to murder the Messiah, but are they planning to offend him? Are, are they planning to ignore his glory? belittle his worth, grieve his heart. I know you've got a lot to memorize at school, so I'll, I'll love you by just giving you a really short verse to memorize. Exodus 23.2. Exodus 23.2. Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. Do not follow the crowd 
in doing wrong. And as a bonus, here's one from the New Testament, also short. 1 Corinthians 15.33, 1 Corinthians 15.33, don't be misled, bad company corrupts good character. Bad company corrupts good character. Don't follow the crowd in doing wrong because bad company corrupts good character. Teenagers, when, when you take your cues from others, here's the thing, you will actually succeed at what you're after. That's the scary part. It will go well for you immediately. When you take your cues from the crowd, you will probably succeed in satisfying them. But here's what I can promise you, both from scripture, theology, and lots of Christian experience. You will not satisfy yourself. Not for long anyway. Because you were made to be satisfied, to find real joy in obeying and pleasing God. Any alternative will leave you empty and dry. Now, if I closed us in prayer now, that would basically be pastoral malpractice. Because yes, I've given some important applications from this passage about things like, I mean, massive things like envy, chokehold of envy, chokehold of the fear of man. But I haven't yet shown you the most important lesson from this passage. That's point three, the substitution of the lamb. The substitution of the lamb. Do you know what the name Barabbas means in Aramaic? Bar Abbas. Bar Abbas, son of of the father. So what we have in this story are two prisoners, the son of the father and the true son of the father. If you think about it, the first one, Barabbas, is, is, is what the people wanted in a Messiah, isn't he? I mean, they wanted someone with some courage, someone who could fight, someone who was willing to take up a sword and bring down Rome. They weren't interested in a Messiah who would say things like, my kingdom is not of this world, and so they clamor to take the sword to him. Do you see what's going on? Jesus deserves to, die, uh, to live. Barabbas deserves to die. Jesus deserves to live, Barabbas deserves to die, and yet Jesus is bound and pinned to a cross so that rebels like Barabbas could live. This is one of the most brilliant and vivid pictures in all the Bible of what is at the heart of the Christian gospel, namely substitution. Substitution. It's what we sang earlier. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a savior. The innocent one condemned for the guilty. The just takes justice for the unjust. The king drinks down wrath all the way down to the bottom of the cup for the rebel. If you don't understand uh, substitution, friend, we are thrilled you're here. But if you don't understand this concept of substitution, then you don't yet understand Christianity. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Barabbases, Christ died for us in the place of us. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. 
the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. And it's even better than just pardon. Yet again, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin, no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's the great exchange. Jesus takes our sin, we get his righteousness. On the cross, what this means is that God treated Jesus as if he had lived our sinful life so that he could treat believers as if we had lived his perfect life. Christ is treated as Barabbas deserved so that Barabbas and we could be treated as Christ deserved. If any of that doesn't make sense to you, please don't leave here this morning without talking to me at the door afterward, talking to someone here that you've met. That is the white hot center of Christianity. If we don't have that to offer you, we have nothing to offer you. We're just wasting our times on Sunday morning feeling religious. Jesus came to live and die and rise in the place of sinners. And we see it vividly enacted in this passage between Barabbas and him. Well, in conclusion, a few years ago, I heard about this classic message uh, from the 1970 Urbana Missions Conference uh, by an African-American man named Tom Skinner, and I, I listened to it. And here is what he said, reflecting on this very scene, specifically reflecting on the moments before Barabbas is released. Quote, the Romans have two revolutionaries in chains. Barabbas is the one burning the whole system down. He's out there killing people. Why him instead of Jesus? Very simple. If you let Barabbas go, you can always stop him. The most Barabbas will do is go out, round up another bunch of rebels, and start another riot. You can bring out the National Guard and put down his riot, find out where he's keeping his ammo, raid his apartment without a search warrant, shoot him while he's asleep. You can stop Barabbas. But how do you stop Jesus? They took and nailed him to a cross. Then they buried him, rolled a stone over his grave, wiped their hands and said, that's one radical who will never disturb us again. Three days later, Jesus Christ pulled off one of the greatest political coups of all time. He got up out of the grave. The leader of a new creation who has come to overthrow the existing order and establish a new order not built on man. Barabbas was the kind of revolutionary they wanted, the kind the world often wants. But Jesus, the silent, suffering lamb, was the revolutionary they needed because he had come to launch an assault, not just on Roman guards, but on a chokehold far stronger, far deeper. And that's sin and death. Kill Barabbas and his revolution is over killed Jesus, and his revolution has just begun. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you that we, through faith in Christ, are not merely pardoned rebels. If we were forgiven and released, that would be glory enough, but we are not merely pardoned rebels in your sight. We are beloved sons and daughters with whom you are well-pleased. Lord, we pray that that 
sense, that deep sense in our hearts of your substitutionary love for us would help to loosen the chokeholds of envy and fear of man as we enter a new week and we try to bring pleasure to the one who gave everything for us. And it's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen.